Bible with you, you can turn to Joshua chapter 18. Joshua 18. These next two chapters, 18 and 19, are just loaded with details. And so we're going to focus mainly tonight on the first part of chapter 18. We'll kind of skim through the allotment descriptions of the remaining tribes in the rest of 18 and 19. And then we'll spend some time at the end on the reward allotment. For Joshua, I think there's some truth there that comes at the end of chapter 19. And we continue to trust the word of the Lord in 2 Timothy 3. That every word God has given to us in Scripture is profitable, including these land allotment lists. And so tonight we get another glimpse of the faithfulness of God and then also how it is that assurance that comes from faith leads to life as opposed to remaining in or outside of the inheritance. Let me let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word tonight and I thank you for your people that have gathered in this place. And Father, I pray that you would help me to preach your word clearly. Lord, bring this text to life for us. It is life. It has life in it already. I pray, Father, that we would mine its truth for the sake of our souls and for your glory and that you would be with us and open every ear, including mine, to listen and believe. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, picking up in chapter 18, verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses the servant of the Lord gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. So it's a sign that a new day might be dawning in Israel when the chapter opens with them assembling and setting up the tabernacle here in the Promised Land. Shiloh was 10 miles or so northeast of Bethel. It was about 30 miles north of Jerusalem in the tribal land of Ephraim, actually. During the period in Israel before the kings, it seems like Shiloh was the center of Israelite worship. This was a new situation. In Deuteronomy 12, verses 1-15, through 15, Moses had told Israel that the day would come when Yahweh would choose a place in the land where He was to be worshipped. A place where sacrifices were to be offered, and sacrificial meals were to be eaten, the laxness of the wilderness period would come to an end when God brought them into their inheritance and gave them rest in the land. It was there that they would worship. 
faithfully, turning away from the many Canaanite holy places around them to focus on this one place of worship of the one true God. They would worship joyfully. Right? You shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters and your male and female servants, as well as the Levite who lives within your town gates. And he would have them worship securely since God had finally given them rest from their enemies. Now Yahweh's dwelling place was set up at Shiloh, the place where he caused his name to dwell. Wandering in the desert did not provide the proper framework for the settled life they would live in the promised land. The worship God desired to have from His people could not come when they were not settled. When they had no true assurance, that is, that all was well. They couldn't worship as God designed in that wilderness state, with the wilderness in their mind. Shiloh marked a new day, but it wasn't the new day, was it? The prophet Zechariah saw that day. When the Lord would enable us to serve Him without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all our days as Joseph, or sorry, as Zechariah recalls in Luke 1, 74 and 75, only Christ can secure that day for us, right? When our worship and service to the Lord will be perfect because sin has been atoned for and the righteousness that we have comes from faith in Christ rather than from our own good works. When they were on the hook for all that, they couldn't worship. They couldn't serve the Lord as He intended for them to do. But here at Shiloh, there is a foreshadowing of when God's people can worship Him as He intends, faithfully, joyfully, and securely. Now, if we skip down in chapter 18 to verses 5-7 through here, you'll notice the author's constant concern throughout the book of Joshua. It's here again that all Israel, all 12 tribes, receive their share of the land inheritance. He wants it clear first and foremost that God kept His Word to the letter. But He also writes this for Israel's sake as a nation. Martin Wuchter writes that this is not needless redundancy, but proceeds... Sorry, this is not needless redundancy, but proceeds from the writer's thematic interest in the twelve tribes scheme and in the unity of Israel as it participates equally in the conquest and as it shares alike in the distribution of the Promised Land. So there's a passion in the author to make sure he accounts for all Israel. So we get all this math. That's, that we get all those accounting details again, if you will. There are seven portions for the seven remaining tribes. So one tribe, Judah, is already placed in the south. And then Joseph, that is one and a half tribes. Ephraim, and then one half of Manasseh in the north. Don't forget Levi. It's one tribe, but they inherit priesthood instead of land. And also remember that two and a half tribes have already received their allotments east of the Jordan. And so Joshua emphasizes all this in his speech, but the writer's including it for the reasons I gave above. And chapter 22 is going to reiterate all this when we get there. But we need to remember this, what's being said here in our contemporary context also, because it's natural to all churches probably, but it's easy to think of ourselves as the special ones who really get it, right? And the other churches or denominations are not quite where we are. That's, that's natural, but the New Testament is adamant that out of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace, John 1, 16. For by one Spirit we all were baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all have been given one Spirit to drink, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, or 12 and 13. But to each of us this grace was given in keeping with the measure of Christ's gift, Ephesians 4, 7. 
So the Scriptures don't deny or eliminate the diversity there is within the body of Christ, but it also warns us against natural snobbery, right? Tries to keep us from such a thing. All God's people matter equally to Him. Each one is truly His heir. Now, the emphasis, the focus in these chapters, 18 and 19, seems to fall on Joshua's accusation here that these seven remaining tribes are developing a sense of laziness or hesitancy about fully possessing the land God has given them. Before we get into the fact that this boils down to a lack of faith, which damages assurance, which then consequently damages worship and righteous living that pleases God, let's flesh this out, what he's saying here back in verse 3. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? They were stalling by this point in Joshua. They haven't taken the land. They haven't done what God had called them to do. That phrase, put off, that's where we get the idea of this laxity or hesitancy. And then it speaks to a persisting action or attitude that they had. They just weren't doing it. They were just kind of sitting around as Joshua begins to speak here. The opposite of put off, of the meaning of it here, is back in chapter 1, verse 5, where the Lord promises Joshua that he will not let go of him, which literally means, I will not drop you. I will not grow lax towards you. Israel is in danger of losing everything here, of letting go or dropping the call of what God had given them. So now was the crucial time. Remember what verse 1 said. The land lay subdued before them. And you're just sitting there. The iron is hot. Strike. While the land had been subdued, that is, the morale of Canaan is broken. Their tribes had been defeated. It's soft for the taking. While that was the case, there still remained work to be done for them to take full possession. As long as you had Canaanite tribes there, you would not be at rest in the land. They have to follow up on their advantage here and nail down that land. That is, permanently occupy it. Don't just defeat them. Make the land they're on, that's their land, make it your land. But they're just kind of hanging out, letting their opportunity slip away. Joshua did what he could to get them moving. They're to select three men from each of the seven tribes, and these 21 men are to case out the land and write up descriptions of it. Then Joshua, as we read in verses 3-7, to would cast lots for the tribes, portion out their inheritance. Maybe that would wake them up. Maybe that would get them moving. There's a sense in which we struggle with this kind of thing today. We touched on this a little bit this morning. The danger of familiarity that makes us lazy, maybe. Here it's causes a sense of hesitancy or laxity. There can become such a lack of concern to honor God with our lives according to His Word because we don't take what Christ has won for us seriously. Right This morning with Mary and Joseph, the issue was familiarity made them forget exactly who He was. In this context, that familiarity that is that we don't take what Christ has accomplished for us seriously. <clears throat> and I do think that has its root in not believing the promise. Now again, you think it's the opposite. That knowing that Jesus has paid the price, or for Israel's sake, knowing that the land was theirs, it lay subdued before them. Grace of God, that grace will make you lazy. That's, I think, what we think. Too much grace will make us lazy. Too much of an emphasis on grace makes you hesitant and lax. <coughs> because 
you think that means you don't have to do anything. I don't think that's the way grace works. I think the Bible actually teaches that in Titus 3, grace is what trains us for godliness. So that concern is ill-founded. Right? That, you know, if you just get grace all the time, people will think they don't have to, <coughs> excuse me, they don't have to do anything the Bible says or anything the Bible called you to, and so you can't emphasize it. And the Bible certainly doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that grace trains us for godliness. Now, how does it do that? How does grace, which means it's finished and you don't have to do anything, how does that train us to be godly? Wouldn't it do the opposite? No, because grace is meant to thrill our hearts to realize that we've been set free. That's why we can't do good works, because we don't do them in faith. We do them from effort and from fear, and it taints everything we do. Grace says, listen, everything for you has been taken care of. Everything is paid for. All your energy can go now into loving others as Jesus has loved you. You are free. Use that freedom for the sake of others. But our flesh twists it. Right? Israel was willing to stay put right where they were, it seemed. That was good enough. This is good enough. No need to have more battles and the risk and the obligation of it all and all the trouble it causes. Just, just stay put. But God's gifts and His Word and His promise are meant to stir us up to love and to good works. Not make us pack it in until the trumpet sounds. The real things Christ has called us to don't appeal to our flesh, though. What He's won for us and what it might mean for our lives, that doesn't appeal to us. So, what do we do? We create laws that God didn't give us, and we try to define righteousness with the rules we do want to keep, or at least think we are actually able to keep, and we focus on those. We focus on what's not hard, what comes naturally. And then we try to sanctify that and make it more spiritual than it really is to cover up for the fact that we aren't doing what God requires at all. And again, the answer to that is not, you know, keep on law so that people don't get too relaxed. The answer is more grace. That that's grace trains you to be godly. If you want to be godly, you got to be trained to be godly. Well, what does that? Grace does it, not the law. That's Titus 3. Israel might not have wanted to settle down. They might not have wanted all that they could have had. H.L. Ellison talks about this. It was all fine and good to have a promised land. That's great. But to settle there meant work. right? And learning new skills in a new place and adapting to changes in their new surroundings. And nobody wants to do that. Notice how careful Joshua is to place the division of the land then under the authority of God in the minds of the people. The text tells us three times that after the 21 men give their reports on the land, that the lot will be cast for the seven tribes before the Lord our God, meaning He will be in charge of it. Meaning before the Lord's presence at the tabernacle in Shiloh is where all these allotments will be designated, which means He's in charge of it. That seems pretty obvious to us, but people are people. And people, including Israel, complain and fight and get discontented when they forget that what they have was given to them by the hand of God. And so they use it for themselves rather than for His glory. This was certainly true, or as true, when it came to towns and borders 
in the promised land. It was easy to forget that God was the one who made all these designations and gave us this in the first place. And so when people forget that, they start acting like it's theirs and they got it and they achieved it. We still struggle with this sort of thing. They needed the constant reminder of that one fact. God has given them the territories they had. It will be the exact same for us today as Christians. Discontent, forgetfulness will kill us. Complaining, quarreling, these are all wilderness attitudes. Wilderness actions. That's what you do when you don't believe that Christ has finished it. For Israel, that was how you acted and behaved when you thought that maybe God was going slack on His promise and it wasn't really yours. Or you get lazy and you think, we've done most of what God said to do, so can we just kind of cool it and relax here? Do we see how much of an issue wilderness sins are? I mean, look at what they did to Israel. Don't ever forget what they did to Israel. We've downplayed how dangerous and wicked it is. Because we all want to do it when we feel like it. So we all try to justify our own sins as actually coming from a good place and a good heart. I mean well. I, we don't know whether or not our intentions are pure. So we should trust Jesus that nothing good dwells in our flesh. When someone is trying to get what they want by complaining and murmuring or grumbling or gossiping, their heart is not right. Guaranteed. Their heart is antichrist, Plain and simple. That sin of grumbling, murmuring, complaining that leads to gossiping and backbiting, that sin never is coming from a good place, but always from a place that's forgotten the Lordship and the sufficiency and the promise of Jesus. That's why the sin is there. Because there isn't faith. And if we coddle it, we should expect to never move beyond where we're sitting right now. Just like Israel all gathered up, not moving on the land. Poison to the people of God. And either we don't know that or we don't care. So, may we have the courage to obey God's Word. How many years will go by? How many bruised reeds will be broken because we refuse to obey the Word of the Lord and trust His promise? We have an inheritance waiting for us. Jesus has overcome this world. The land is subdued before us. Right? It's, it's already conquered land. We could make so much headway for the sake of our Lord if we would just believe that and move forward and stop fighting to take by force what's already been given to us by grace and by the power of Christ. So you don't need to expend your energy fighting for territory anymore. Now all of our energy can be expended loving and serving our neighbors and our enemies because all the land is ours. That's 1 Corinthians. The world is yours. So let us love and serve one another like we have nothing to lose because we don't. Other than the prison that is life in a fallen world without Christ. The rest of chapter 18 and chapters 18 and 19 show us the completed allotment for the remaining seven tribes, right? Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. Whether these seven tribes will do as Joshua said and press their current advantage all the way by clearing out their local inheritance remains to be seen. And uh, spoiler alert, they won't. 
But Joshua has done all he could do as a leader by doing what God has told him to do. Prod them and assign them their various lots. Tell them what land is theirs if they want to take it. We won't read through all of these word for word here as we head into the rest of 18 and then 19. But let me try to give us a a breakdown of what we're seeing here. Benjamin uh, received the hill country south of Ephraim and north of Judah. That's 1811. 26 miles long, east to west. uh, 12 miles wide, north to south. And the description of Benjamin's territory is about twice as long as everyone else's. Takes up 1811 to 28. We don't know why that is. I don't know why that is. Simeon's inheritance consisted of towns within the southwestern section of Judah's territory, actually. That's chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Zebulun's portion in 1910 to 16 was in southern Galilee with Asher on the northwest and Naphtali on the northeast, Issachar on the southeast and Manasseh on the southwest where the, uh, the Wadi Kishon formed the border there. In 1917 to 23, Issachar settled at the east end of the Valley of Jezreel or Esdraelon with the Gilboa mountain range to the south and the hills of lower Galilee to the north. Asher's area, 1924 to 31, stretched all the way from Mount Carmel in the south to Sidon in the north, from the Mediterranean on the west to the western slopes of the Galilean hills to the east. Naphtali's lot in 1932 to 39 is, is, is harder to trace. Generally speaking, though, um, I lost my place, I'm sorry. Right. Generally speaking, Naphtali's lot lays between the area of Mount Tabor in the south and the river Batani in the north. Uh, it touched the upper Jordan River on the eastern side of it, which means it covered the larger portion of eastern and central Galilee. And then Dan's original territory in 1940 to 48 lay west of Benjamin's with Ephraim in the north and Judah on the south. But that's not where the text ends. The text ends tonight with another witness to the Lord's faithfulness at the end of chapter 19. So let's skip over there to 19, verse 49. When they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, Timnath-Serah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritance that Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finished dividing the land. There's a German commentator named Karl Gutbrod. He wrote about these verses that the territorial description of the West Jordan tribes stands in a striking framework. It begins with the granting of an inheritance to Caleb. You remember that, chapter 14. And ends with the granting of such to Joshua, here in chapter 19. So the whole account of the land allotments for the western tribes stands together, even though the opening and closing in 18 and 19 focus on Shiloh, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Chapters 14 to 19 constitute one unit. There was a contrast there between Caleb and the Joseph tribes at the beginning and the end of chapters 14 and 17. We can detect the same type of contrast in chapters 18 and 19 between Joshua and these same seven tribes. Caleb and Joshua's stories book in the section in a very positive way, while the stories of Joseph's tribes and the seven western tribes are almost completely negative. 
This takes us back to Numbers 13 and 14. What the text is doing. Where of the twelve spies that were originally sent to spy out Canaan, only Caleb and Joshua were willing to bank on God's promises to overcome Canaan. Their faith grew while the lack of faith in the Israelites also grew. The majority report of the spies had been contagious. Israel as a whole did not believe God. But God promised that His remnant of only two believers in all Israel would in fact enter the land from that wilderness generation. The rest would die off outside the promised land because of unbelief. Caleb and Joshua here, in the midst of remaining doubt and unbelief and a lack of assurance, Caleb and Joshua, just as promised, receive exactly what God said they would by command of the Lord in chapter 19, verse 50. So, very quickly, the majority is never automatically faithful or right because it's the majority. You will be hard-pressed to find in Scripture when the majority was right. We bank everything on the majority, don't we? It's insanity. God keeps His promises. And if He has to protect the faithful from the Anakin, or from chariots, or from high raging waters in the river, He'll do it. These two seemingly boring or tedious chapters are actually filled with theology. God fulfills every dot and line of His perfect Word to the degree that His people are free to walk in light of His victory. There's only one thing that separates Joshua and Caleb from all the rest of the people in their laxity and hesitation. What is it? Faith. That's it. That's it. Faith. Faith is counted by God as righteousness in Romans 4 and 5. Why? Because all faith does is lay hold of the promise that God made. That's all faith does. That's all Caleb and Joshua had done. It was clear earlier in the text that the people couldn't even worship God as He desired if they weren't settled when they had no true assurance. Right, well, where does assurance come from? It comes from faith, and they didn't have it. And our hope tonight, beloved, is built on much better promises than those that Israel had regarding Canaan. So Hebrews tells us, we don't have to keep this land. Not to clear people out. We can love and serve them. Jesus took hold of this land. He conquered it and He cleared it out for us. Satan's back is broken now. Oh, he has fangs. And he still limp around the world like a roaring lion. He can't touch you. Not your soul. The usefulness of assurance is found in the fact that assurance is the means by which our faith in the promise will endure through trials and difficulties. Will endure when we are not settled. But it's also the source and means of lives that will glorify God in obedience. It all comes from assurance. It all comes from belief in the Gospel. Everything the Christian has that he's meant to give away, that she's meant to serve with, beloved, all that comes from assurance or it will not come. This is why Paul will say in Romans, if it doesn't come from faith, Romans 14, it's sin. Why? Because there is no other means to righteousness but faith. 
This is why assurance is so important. This is why the steady diet is always Christ crucified. Because if we want to live the lives that God has called us to live genuinely, we will need assurance underneath everything. And not in a passing way, not in a peripheral way. But we'll need to know it all the time that it's settled, it's finished, we're safe. We can't lose, we can't get ourselves kicked out of this family. We can't lose the land. Jesus has done all the work to secure it. So one day He'll bring heaven down to earth and resettle His kingdom on top of this one. And it's ours. Everything for the Christian comes back to and is grounded on whether or not there is faith in what God has said. The root and foundation of all Christian worship and all Christian living is immovable faith in the Word of Christ for us in the Gospel. Of all the things that you believe, believe that He is for you because He is for you. Praise His name. Would you stand, please?